0: What's happening is because the office pipeline and development has really slowed and and new building has stopped We see a real opportunity in the near future to keep building new office product along the lines of what I'm talking about and Really be the only game in town at the same time that all these leading companies just want new space
1: Good morning And welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. It's Monday, September 18th. And we're your hosts, Susanna Kavanaugh. And I'm Isabella Farr.
2: So today we're taking a look back at the office market with Related's head of office development, Philippe Visser. Obviously,
1: the office market has changed a lot over the past few years, as we know, as remote work has taken hold and many companies have downsized across the country. But Ultra-new buildings are still attracting tenants, that's according to Visser, which is what related is building across the country. We went over the company's new projects in Chicago and Austin and, of course, talked about its pinnacle Hudson Yards.
2: But first, here are the news highlights of last week. So the real deal had a handful of scoops that blew up in the past few days. I think the messy deal reigns supreme, though. Catherine Kalurgis, South Florida's bureau chief, broke that story. Right. So, soccer superstar Lionel Messi picked up a waterfront mansion in Fort Lauderdale. It's an eight bedroom, 10,500 square foot estate in Bay Colony that Messi bought with his wife, Antonella Racuso. He paid $10.8 million.
1: And that purchase coincides with him joining Inter Miami, right?
2: Yeah, no doubt. So he joined the team in July. Super exciting for soccer fans. And his new digs are about five miles from Drive Pink Stadium, which is where Miami plays. Enviable commute time there. I see why he bought it. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And the Real Deal Chicago team unearthed an incriminating conversation between two of the city's top residential brokers last week.
2: We'll play the audio, but Isabella, can you lead us in with some context? So, this recording is from
1: March 2023. And to set the scene, we're coming off a winter of layoffs that hit many residential brokerages given the market slowdown, right? The two agents on this call head up. At Properties' top Chicago team. Lee Marcus is the co founder and Graham Bailey is second in command. They're discussing how to trim the fat. Marcus speaks first.
0: Like, hey, we better do it before she gets pregnant again, because then you can't fire her. You can't lay her off.
1: So, since that recording surfaced, 16 people have left the team. And those departures include staff, executives, and high volume agents. Some moved to Compass, which is obviously at property's biggest competitor in the market, and five staffers were ultimately laid off or fired.
2: And the folks who up and left, like, was it over that call specifically?
1: The departures were definitely tied to concerns about company culture. One former employee said the, quote, wholesome image that was fed to employees and promoted on social media is, quote, not real. There were also worries about the financial stability of the team. Marcus and Bailey on the call can also be heard saying they were on track to lose a million dollars this year. Marcus, in a statement, said the comment about firing a pregnant woman was, quote, regrettable and did not align with his personal beliefs. I think it's worth noting that Marcus co-founded the team with his wife, Lindsay, and the two of three kids together.
2: WeWork is still dominating headlines after the firm, facing bankruptcy, said it would try to renegotiate nearly all of its leases. Reporter Keith Larson broke the news that Adam Newman, the firm's former CEO who inked those leases, is now trying to pick up former WeWork space. A spokesperson for Newman denied those discussions were on the table. You have to give it to
1: Newman. That is a resourceful move.
2: So specifically, a court filing revealed Newman in June was in talks to lease space at 88 University Place, which is in Greenwich Village. The negotiations were between Newman's family office and the building's landlord, Arch Companies. So Newman had previously co-owned the building and leased space to WeWork. That sounds like a conflict of interest. Yes. The deal was okayed, but he did get some flack for self-dealing. and It's just one example of that with him.
1: WeWork's expected departure from a number of its lease spaces is another shakeup for the New York City office market. The Real Deals' Jeff Andrews reported that landlords have been tapping other co-working operators in the hope that they'll actually pick up old WeWork space. Will they? It's complicated. So a number of co-working operators have moved towards a management model where they don't sign leases but just manage space on a landlord's behalf. I actually wrote about a deal in San Francisco recently Mm. where it was like that. At most target specific segments of the market. We work with lease big spaces for long terms at above market rents. And a lot of those sites just don't appeal
2: to its rivals. Mm. Sounds like another potential hit to office, which I will seize as a pivot into your talk with related to Philippe Visser. Take it away.
1: So, I wanted to jump backwards a little bit before we get into like current trends that you're seeing. But you joined Related in 2013. Can you talk about what the office development market and industry was like then?
0: Well, it's been a totally fascinating time and kind of crazy ride over the last 10 years. I mean, I would say the workplace itself and office development, commercial development has changed probably more in the last 10 years than it has in the previous 50. I was I was thinking about this actually the other day um, before this podcast about kind of what what predicated and what what were some of the things shaping that. And if you think about um, the rise of tech, technology, um, the technology industry over the last like 10, 15 years, both across the country, Silicon Valley, um, New York City, those Google, companies like Google and Meta were groundbreaking in creating these headquarters and office spaces that were super highly amenitized. It was like the proverbial foosball, right? Like ping pong, but also you could get your dry cleaning done, right? All all these amenities, and then of course food was a huge, huge part of it. Still is, and um, that was pretty revolutionary. Um, even though there's not a lo- necessarily a lot of companies that can afford to do that or want to do that, because those were those were that was a time. Offices were being designed to really keep people there all the time. It was like the twenty-four hour right hack- hackathon, right where you I guess stumble into the cafeteria in the morning or whatever and have breakfast.
1: Did it was it revolutionary for an office landlord? You know, were you like surprised? Like, wow, we've never seen this sort of stuff before.
0: I mean, I think it really first started in their headquarters. It, it wasn't so much about office development per se, as it was that like here's a leading company in the world and how they think about the workplace. By the way, open plan, right? Cutting back on interior offices, that 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 whole trend. Um, start of a lot of coll- different collaboration spaces, start of outdoor spaces. And they had a tremendous influence on other companies, right? Because other companies who, by the way, were also turning into tech companies, right? GM is turning into a tech company. And that was actually something... Okay. Um, I remember in, literally in 2013, our chairman, Stephen Ross, really presciently was talking about that and was one of the uh, the, the ideas that for how we developed Hudson Yards, which I'll talk about um, in in a little bit. And so these companies were hiring engineering talent and they were hiring the best and the brightest, right, to transform themselves across the board. So they wanted to create those kind of environments and they were looking for, hey, let's look for... Market leaders in attracting right top technology, young talent, um, and, and it's the Metas and the Googles that were doing that. The other theme that I think is interesting, particularly today, having read that, like WeWork just said they're basically going, going bankrupt and not a not a going concern. Even though that business model didn't end up working at scale, it it worked kind of like at a micro scale. It didn't work when you you expanded it, right? WeWork was also revolutionary. I mean, to the credit of Adam Newman, right? His genius was thinking about office as kind of this innovative, energized place. And when you w- walked into WeWork's headquarters, it was on 18th Street in New York City, and um, it, it was it, it it was pretty impressive, right? There was this huge coffee bar. People are at laptops. People were sitting at at different tables. Like, there's a receptionist that felt more like um, maybe even a little bit more like a hotel. Um, it turned out, like, I don't know, maybe half the people were actors and, like, no one was doing really much work. Um, but it was really impressive. And they they had certainly, um, I think, good success initially because they could create those environments. And you actually had companies that hired them, right, to say, oh, I want a WeWork-type environment. And I think a lot of people actually emulated that. That was playing off the tech trend, right, but... Um, but that was uh, taking it almost a step further and deeper uh, into corporate life in the workplace. And then, and then the last thing I'll say, which is the most obvious, right, is coming out of COVID and the impact of remote and hybrid work, which we're still experiencing, uh, obviously, you know, huge shifts, really tumultuous. I mean, w- one of these days, people are going to, we're going to go back and like chart Okay, from 2020 to 2025, like here's the different stages, right, of, of how we dealt with this and thought of it. Um, it's fascinating. It's scary, right? Um, that's probably from a commercial landlord, I'd say that.
1: So I wanted to, you know, you brought up this earlier, but I wanted to talk about Hudson Yards specifically because it is one of related to crown jewels, honestly. Also, it was developed at a time where. As you mentioned, work culture was shifting a little bit.
0: Uh, certainly, nothing I like talking about more than Hudson Yards. Um, so I've had I've been fortunate to be able to work on it since 2013. Um, it all kind of happened incredibly quickly. Um, you know, given the scale, I mean, size of downtown Baltimore, right? Like it's 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 really a sort of a city building scale in a city within a city of New York. And I think to to some degree, and I was mentioning earlier how you know, Stephen Ross was thinking about technology and talent attraction. And er earlier on when we were pitching companies to come to what was then an empty rail yard with like screeching trains. And and I, I just, I very distinctly remember standing on like 33rd Street in the middle of winter with like the wind whipping off the water, these like LIR trains screeching by, coming out of our like tiny like field office at the time, which was like a five story, you know, class D building and thinking like how on earth are we going to attract people here? Like, Oh my God, like this is really, you're creating a vision. And I think it's the scale of the place that allowed us to create a large enough mixed use vision and, um, assure people that, Hey, we can make this happen and we can make this happen together. People being companies and financial partners, um, that enabled it, um, to happen and then be as successful, um, as it was. And early on when we were pitching tenants to to come to that rail yard, right, which we never mentioned, we never actually mentioned it was a rail yard. We would show a, a, a slide that literally had a picture of a Fortune magazine. I think it was like 2012 or 2013 that said Hudson Yards, had a big picture of Hudson Yards on the cover, largest private development ever in the US. And then we would show another magazine, which was like Harvard Business Review. And it was like, then millennials, right? Time has passed. Now it's like Gen Z people are talking about, but then millennials, like millennials will eventually in 10, 15 years, make up the majority of the workforce. And how do you track them? How do you track that talent? And so very early on, I'd say we had like a whatever X number year, five year jump on a lot of our competition. That was our angle. That was like, we are not talking about real estate. Yes. It's like, enormous buildings and super exciting and city building scale. And we love talking about, you know, curtain wall and floor plates and all that great stuff. But ultimately talking to you about the buildings themselves are not going to excite the CEO. What's going to excite the CEO and the C-suite who are making those decisions to come is I want to create an environment that um, my workers are going to come to and be excited about.
1: Talk about how mixed use plays into that for you.
0: Absolutely critical, right? I mean, I, I think... From the very, very beginning, um, Hudson Yards was always about mixed use, um, which, by the way, is like it's we, we all kind of in real estate, we throw that around a lot, oh, mixed use. It's It really is tough to pull off. I mean, I credit just, just an amazing team at Related, right? I mean, this is obviously way beyond one person, um, and I'm not sure really any other developer who could have pulled it off because you needed that expertise in luxury residential and hospitality and creating open space and building a $1.5 billion platform and commercial office, all those ingredients that I was talking about. Um, and it was, it was so vital to the success that when we, when we presented Hudson Yards and we talked about the, all the ingredients, it was literally all those components together. We had the shed, right, which was a cultural component that was being built. We had residential, we had affordable housing, it's luxury residential, right? That was being built. You had, of course, commercial office space, right? At the time we had um, landed in t- 2013, uh, BCG, Boston Consulting Group, L'Oreal Tapestry um, to anchor, uh, and SAP to anchor 10 Hudson Yards, right? And we were in negotiations at the time with Warner, then Time Warner um, to come to 30 Hudson Yards to be the big anchor. And so you had a commercial office, You'd retail, we had 600,000 square feet of retail there. Um, that was the glue that kind of held it together and made it a place. And then um, we had seven acres in the first phase of open space, soon to be 14 acres, um, that we spent an enormous amount of time thinking about how that actually ties the whole place together and is of a quality that really no one had seen in New York City um, and anchored by the vessel and that was really the glue to hold the campus together from a visual standpoint um, and to activate it. Live, 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 work, play was kind of the cliche that we're, we almost try to avoid now, but it's true. It's like everyone, people are talking about the 15 minute city, right? Which we like coin, we're like, oh, we're the five minute city because everything is within, you know, walking distance of 400 feet or whatever, right? You can literally live your life at a place like Hudson Yards.
1: So I wanted to go to the start of 2020, you know, when the pandemic hit. Tell me about, you know, Related's first thoughts here. You know, were you starting to pull back on office development? How did you first kind of think about those initial shifts in the office market?
0: Really, I mean, when, look, when the pandemic hit, we, we had remote work for actually about um, as short of a time as you were legally allowed. We came back to the office June 20th. Um, 2020, which I tell people that and they're like, wait, what? Like, like, so it still seemed like a really long time at home, I will say. Um, we we're back for like three months. So we were working already to get sort of our vibrant workplace culture in place as quickly as we can. And and um, and a big part of that was um, construction never stopped. I think it was halted in New York City maybe for like a week, 10 days. Um, we were building 50 Hudson Yards, $3 billion Dollar office building with lots of tenants and deadlines, and it was critical that that kept going with the proper health and safety procedures.
1: So fast forward to now. Obviously, the office market is still struggling. Um, you know, we've seen reports that office values are set to drop hundreds of billions of dollars over the next ten years. Um, I'm sure you've seen those headlines too. You're still proceeding with office development. There are so many. Other firms that have pivoted away from office construction altogether or said, okay, we're gonna turn some of our office into residential. What, you know, drives related to still build office, number one. And number two, how do you get tenants in at this point?
0: Yeah. So I think all those ingredients that I've been talking about for Hudson Yards, mixed use and beyond, right? We see that as really like a new class of office, which we've been calling, Jeff Blau calls it class AA. We call it lifestyle office. Um, really starting to think about how, again, how you can build space that enhances people's lives. And it starts from our base of our, our buildings and the sort of vibrant mixed use campus that is Hudson Yards. We're over 80% occupancy now, right? Um, that's butts and seats as opposed to leasing. We're 99% leased. Um, Hundred percent, least in in our existing buildings, um, and uh, so Hudson Yards feels like a really vibrant place, right? Um, and there's crowded elevators, like you know turnstiles, right? It 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 is. We are, I'd say, at normal occupancy at this point, um, way in advance um, of frankly the rest of the country in um, uh, Manhattan, um, and so that. That, that that has been the baseline of our success and our philosophy. And we've had tremendous leasing success. And really what's happened is that you know, older cl- Class A buildings, what was called Class A, they're really the, the cream of the crop, like top 5%, top 3%, which is where we play in and what um, we've done and what we will continue to do. And then there's also every landlord calls their building a class A, right? If it's built in the 1980s or 1970s, 1960s, um, and it's in a good location and it's got decent, um, you know, characteristics, they'll call it a class A building. And so will the market. And the truth is there's a huge differentiation between new product, right? And, and that kind of product. And um, really you have a, a widening um, class B whether it's class, class A minus or B or whatever you want to call it from, you know, a vintage 1960s, 70s buildings that has 12 foot floor ceiling heights, right. Where you're literally feel cramped. Um, It's like being John Malkovich, the seventh and a half floor, you have to like duck. Um, And and tenants are even more focused on ceiling heights. It's actually amazing, even in new buildings than they ever have been, right. They want that airiness. They want that, um, that feel of coming in and the light and air and, and these, these amazing views, right? Um, all the systems that we talked about um, earlier, right? Just older systems um, and buildings that were built with kind of different purposes in mind, right? In terms of the more traditional workplace. And um, so, uh, and then older buildings, like the mid block kind of older class B minus building um, with, uh, a mix of tenants that were really, really struggling when you talk about conversions, po- conversion possibilities, all those things. So our focus on this kind of class AA lifestyle office, um, we, we've done um, a huge amount of leasing over the last three years um, uh, at Hudson Yards and beyond, doing leases over $200 a square foot at 50 Hudson Yards, um, bringing in t- top quality tenants who frankly were looking for the office as a tool to expand their presence in New York city and as a, as a place to, um, that their talent wants to be. And it's only accelerated, frankly, that dynamic because when you come on campus now, we've had, we've had, we had a, a, a big, um, big tenant prospect actually come on campus recently. And they visited BlackRock, um, who moved the world headquarters here. Um, and, uh, and the place is buzzing and they were just, blown away. They're like, oh my God, we really have to, to kind of look seriously at, at you know where we can kind of fit in here because this is a totally different dynamic um, than the rest of New York City right now. And um, w- what's happening is because the office pipeline and development has really slowed and, and new building has stopped, we see a real opportunity in the near future to keep building new office product along the lines of what I'm talking about and really be the only game in town at the same time that all these leading companies just want new space. And that is being evidenced by some big requirements that we're looking at now, that they're only looking at new development um, and, um, and a shrinking supply because it's, frankly, it's just leasing up, that in a year or so, you are literally not going to have any new space left in New York City. Again, at the time that tenants just want new space. I've been using New York City as an example because we're based here, and we're um, seeing a lot of these trends, but the, the these trends hold across the board um, in every city, and obviously, market by market, it varies. Some markets are just weaker than others. some markets are slower to come back. The Bay Area has been hit hard, um, as lots of folks know. I think technology as an industry has been the 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 slowest to come back into the office. And frankly, had gobbled up so much space over the last, you know, five, 10 years that, um, that they were dealing with really kind of an oversupply and uncertainty over their headcounts, right? Um, with some of the recent layoffs, albeit they were still at kind of record headcounts because they had hired a lot during COVID. Um, so it, it really it really does vary, but the best projects continue to do really well. And I think that gap is going to widen over the next couple of years. And um, Chicago, I think, is a good example of that. And we we have, in Chicago, we have our um, flagship development, 725 Randolph. We had looked at um, pre-COVID doing um, residential rental, um, where we've had a ton of success in Chicago and they've been amazing at kind of redefining that market, our our related Midwest team and a hotel component. And um, sort of bucking the trend, l- looking to do, we're, we're now um, launching a 1 million square foot office building there. And reason being is that Fulton Market is the place to be in Chicago. It's really one of the top neighborhoods in the entire country in terms of restaurants and bars and development and nightlife. And just it's just a place you want to be. It's buzzing. And you have all these tenants in Chicago who are looking... Um, when they're looking for new space, they're saying, I want to be where my talent wants to be, both now and future looking, because this is a decision I'm not just making for right now, this decision I'm making for five, ten years out, and Fulton Market's the place I want to be. And, um, and the sort of single-use office district, right, um, unfortunately, like the Loop and downtown LA, downtown Dallas, right, all the places like that. Right, have really, really struggled, and that's because they're places that have always sort of shut down after five o'clock, and that's the opposite of what people want right now, for all the reasons I talked about earlier. So, um, we've had real demand um, at seven twenty-five. Talk to me, talk to me in a year about the project, but um, it's an incredible building, and it is the best location, um, right at the kind of gateway full to market. So you can actually easy walk to the trains, um, and uh, and you know. Great, great. Um, car access and all, all these ingredients that are, again, sort of more important than ever because people don't want long community to the office either when they come in. And so we think that project has all the elements to actually outperform and be really successful in a market that, frankly, is not great. Right. Office. I mean, the Chicago office market is really suffering and there's a lot of vacancy. But then when you look at, OK, who's our competition for new development? There's not actually that many buildings and we think we're by far the best location and there's really not that many existing buildings that if you want just great office product in a great neighborhood you don't have a lot of options which it's it's totally antithetical to what you might think particularly when you see the headlines and when you see all the vacancy statistics but Like that dynamic is playing out um, in a lot of places.
1: You saw that location specifically in Chicago, I'm referring to, that location specifically designed better for office than like you could put maybe residential or retail or something somewhere else. Does that make sense?
0: We saw that as a really, really special location for office and that um, instead of doing kind of a mixed use to two buildings there. You could do just a landmark office building and be the best building in Chicago and frankly be, be one of the best buildings in the country. And um, we're putting a flagship equinox, we're putting a signature restaurant. And because of that location, because of those ingredients, in the building it's, it's the building's going to be more like a club uh, than just an office building. Um, we have this great rendering that actually shows the rooftop pool um, or the terrace pool. This spectacular outdoors terrace that's going to see the skyline of Chicago Um, that's going to have a pool run by Equinox. It's actually, it's not really for office workers per se. (laughs) They can be there. Um, Everyone pictures like, is this my colleague? I'm going to see my colleague in my bathing suit. That is not true. Um, Unless they decide to go to Equinox in the middle of the day. Um, But it is that example of like, wow, this is, this is a place that I really want to be after work. And it's that as opposed to just the nine to five, it's, the five to nine is just as important. And you want to be in a place like Fulton Market, just like Hudson Yards, on the, you want to be on the west side because you know what? When people go out in New York City, they say, I want to, be, I, I want to go in the meatpacking or I want to go out in West Chelsea. Like these, I, near the Highline, these are the fun places to go out. Um, and that's a lot of what, when people are picturing, how do, I, how do I get people to my company? And then how do I get them to come into the office post covid and differentiate between sitting at home in your pajamas um, and hanging out, right? What, like be together with people and sort of enjoy and celebrate life. And it, you're being in a neighborhood like a Fulton Market, like a Hudson Arts, like the west side that, that could do that.
1: I think my last question, I wanted to talk about Austin because you're also working on office developments there. And there have been some headlines around, you know, Meta pulling out of office space there. And, you know, maybe a lot of the hype around Austin is this, like, growing office market. Maybe that was, you know, overblown a little bit. But I wanted to get your perspective on Austin. You're still, you know, going ahead with the developments. Is, is it just a function of what we've already been talking about is that tenants want new space?
0: Yeah. So the Austin office market is really tough right now. Very challenging. And Austin has had a, has had boom bust before. Um, it's tied to the tech sector still. It is diversifying, and we think we'll continue to diversify industry-wise. But right now, in some sense, it's really tied to the health of the Bay Area and those big technology companies. And if those technology companies are shrinking and, right, and reducing headcount, that's going to hit the Austin office market. And that's exactly what's happened, right? Meta, as you said, is, is, is looking to sublease about 600,000 square feet, which for Austin, downtown, and new development that's never occupying right? That's a huge, that's a huge amount of space for Austin. And um, there's a pretty decent pipeline of actually new office that's under development. And um, so the, literally the current snapshot of the Austin market is challenging, but at at the same time, there are still new requirements. Um, And, you know, there are several tech companies who are in the market. IBM signed a big lease in the domain. Um, three, 400,000 square feet that I think was a bellwether for like Austin's here to stay. Apple has their huge campus. And uh, look, I think the way we approach the Austin market um, really is uh, we're there for the long haul. Um, we spent a lot of time looking at the market. Um, we love Austin. Uh, look, it doesn't take a genius to know, oh, Austin was a hot market. It's been hot for a while. And Tops in terms of corporate relocations and population growth. But what really drew us to Austin was that Austin has the, it is and has um, sort of the, the foundation to be just an incredible urban city. Um, in some sense, it's two different markets. It's the Northwest, which is a little bit more Silicon Valley where Apple has its headquarters, right? And, um, and then it's the CBD, the Central Business District, and the area south of it which is pretty compact. It's walkable. The roads aren't big. It's very pleasant. You scoot around, you bike around. Um, and, uh, uh, South Congress where we have, um, two developments, uh, sites, actually three, I guess, um, including Lady Bird Lake, um, is one of the best like high streets shopping restaurant districts in the country. It's just plain fun. Right. And I'd say um, has thrived coming out of during and actually coming out of COVID. And um, and the zoning in Austin actually really forces development to be dense and together. And, and that's because you have these um, single basically single story residential districts that are surrounding all those areas. that I'm talking about now um, that don't want density, that don't want to be rezoned. I think that's going to change over time. But essentially that uh, forces and creates a dynamic that um, you have a lot of, your development is going to be downtown um, or in a downtown district like the South or, or the CBD. And it just makes for what we think is going to be a top 10 American city when you combine that with the University of Texas and Austin, which is just kind of second to none in, in terms of technology talent who comes out of there and stays Right, doesn't just leave but stays, right? And then all the ingredients that of the Austin lifestyle that um that are you know in terms of outdoor living, um wellness and outdoor uh activities from paddleboarding in the river, right, paddleboarding the lake, um, to uh biking on the hiking and bike trail around it, um, that make it just an incredible lifestyle, right? That is um, is hard to match. And Look, when we opened our off- office there and kind of looked around here and asked our associates, like, who wants to move to Austin? A Bunch of hands went up. Right. And like people um, that never would have happened 15 years ago. And that shows what a different city it is today. Um, and it remains, I think, a top location for graduates you know, coming out of, of some of the best universities. And that talent pool, ultimately, we think is going to create a really robust commercial market in addition to residential and all the other things we do. Um, So we're we're excited about the kind of runway and the future of Austin and, and what it's going to become.
1: Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series or if you have an idea or guest you'd like to pitch, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're talking to the agency's Mauricio Umansky. Plus, we'll have footage from the Real Deals event in L.A. this week. Tune in then.